you know, this this for us at the European Commission is an important day because the president of the Commission delivered a State of the Union speech, um, which just gives some some indication of what our plans are for the next year. We've just announced that we will um, increase our ambition in terms of our emissions reduction for 2030 to minus 55 percent. Uh, and we will follow that up with a lot of measures for all the sectors affected. Um, I do believe that the pandemic has shown how vulnerable we are and how urgent uh, the measures are to get us to climate neutrality, which we hope to reach in Europe by, by 2050. Um, and I, 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 I was, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, the first one or two months, um, you know, you got these reactions, people saying um, climate policy, environmental policy is a luxury. Uh, we're struggling to survive here. Um, we're worried about our health, our jobs. Uh, don't bother us with this luxury good, which is called uh, uh, the climate crisis. But um, much to my pleasant surprise, um, public opinion hasn't shifted in that way. Yes, the pandemic is at the top of people's uh, worries. Yes, they worry about their health and their jobs, but they haven't forget forgotten about the other threats to humanity. Uh, the biodiversity crisis and the especially the climate crisis. So we have a huge opportunity to show through international cooperation, to show through politics um, that um, uh, we can actually do something about this. Um, so um, I think uh, to kickstart our discussions today, let me recall that uh, the six priority actions for a sustainable recovery, uh, which were outlined, uh, I think a fortnight ago uh, by Antonio Guterres, uh, first, investing in green jobs, not bailing out polluting industries, ending fossil fuel subsidies, accounting for climate risk in all financial and policy decisions, working together, and I think most importantly, and this is in all the impact assessments we do in this area, we get this as the number one worry, the worry that this is going to exacerbate um, uh, differences within society. So. It is only going to help uh, to work if we if we leave no one behind and that this is not just a slogan, but this is translated very concretely in social policies. Uh, uh, if we don't succeed in doing that, then we can forget about reaching climate neutrality by 2050 because people will oppose it because they feel they lose out and they don't have a part uh, in this. So we, we will integrate this in Europe very concretely in, our, in all our policies. Um, we have announced that 30% uh, of our budget, EU budget, will be spent on climate-related projects um, and that 100% uh, of the budget uh, should be branded do no harm. So we have to make sure that nothing we do takes us away from accomplishing the Paris Agreement. And at least 30% of what we do is direct investment in climate uh, policy. Now, we can lead on this as Europeans, but if we then lead and, and look back and nobody's following, it, it, there's no point. Uh, there's no point. So we need to convince the rest of the world to tag along. One, one of the uh, slightly encouraging things is on the many, many issues where we disagree with China and have some pretty hard confrontations. We had it at our summit last Monday. On this issue, China seems to be moving in uh, the right uh, uh, direction. And, uh, you know, let me salute uh, the Canadian minister because Canada has done uh, tremendous work in leading this uh, and giving us also hope that we're not uh, alone uh, in this. Um, some very encouraging developments in a number of Asian countries and Latin American countries. I'm really excited about what is happening in Africa uh, today. Um, many things are, are hugely challenging, but the 
mindset has changed in many political circles in in Africa on on the sustainability issue, and we should jump into that certainly as uh, Europeans. Um, um, I think that that we need to 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 establish. Of course, um, let me address the elephant in the room. So much depends on on the elections on the third of November in the United States uh, for the world as a whole, not just for for the United States, but. Whatever happens, let us, those who believe in international cooperation, those who believe in multilateralism, let us try and set up systems that will allow others to join if they can, if at the federal level they can't, at least states and cities and NGOs and companies could, could join. Um, but let me stress in conclusion that resilience and inclusiveness are essential elements of the approach we will be, ch be choosing in uh, the EU. Um, because uh, also, you know, COVID, the, the the virus doesn't discriminate, but the effects of the virus are extremely discriminatory on parts of the population, and it has exacerbated the problem we already have with the climate crisis. So if there's ever any time, I mean, this is probably in my lifetime, I'm, I'm 59 years old, it's probably in my lifetime, the, the moment where redistribution as the prime instrument of governance and, and, and politics becomes more important than ever before. And I, I believe we need to we need to look that into the eye, because if we don't acknowledge that this is an age of redistribution and that we need to do it in a fair way, then we will lose everything else we're trying to do. Thank you very much. Mr. Timmermans, thank you for that. Hi, I'm Megan Leslie, our moderator today, and uh, it's nice to virtually meet you. Man, you look good for somebody who just came from Berlin. <laughs> wow. Um, thanks for those opening words. And um Let's, I, I do want to jump in here. When we think about who is watching today, who's tuning in, we're probably all on the same page as when we talk about these theories. You know, is it possible to have a just green recovery? We're probably all saying, yeah, we think so. So I really want to take this opportunity to learn from each of you and get some of those good ideas about how this can play out in Canada. Uh, what are some pitfalls we need to avoid? What are some best practices that have worked or some innovative ideas? So um, I'll pose this question to you first, but I'd love to hear from all the panelists about this. You, you talked about um, some public uh, analysis or polling about how people have not given up on these other threats. They, they want to see recovery and tackling these other threats. Well, on the first day of uh, the first panel on Monday here of the summit, we did have some polling data uh, done by More in Common and explored that a bit. And More in Common found that here, people do believe that governments should do more to address climate change, but at the same time, they're, they're maybe prioritizing that economic recovery from the pandemic over a solid environmental plan. Two issues, still prominent, but can we prioritize? I think here in Canada, some of us think that this idea of uh, uh, progress towards economic security and environment is this new concept, when in fact, grassroots movements have been working on it for decades, you've been working on it for decades. So your work with the European Green Deal that says by by we can do this by turning climate and environmental challenges into opportunities and make the transition for a just and inclusive future. What have been some of your experiences of working through those tensions? Well, you know, before the pandemic, um, the economy was doing quite well. So when we came with our ideas on, on the, the Green Deal as a growth strategy, um, Many were saying, "Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's 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 be part of this." But many were also saying, "Yeah, it's a good idea, but let's see whether it works, and then we'll wait a couple of years, etc." 
Now, the pandemic has changed all that uh, because now, you know, we, we, took, we, we, we took deep dives into all the industrial sectors in Europe. And almost all of them now are facing quite radical restructuring. And um, we've mobilized more money to invest than ever before. And it's probably one off. It's not something we can do again in, in next year. or So nobody can avoid making a choice right now. And the biggest threat to where we are now is that public authorities under pressure of the immediate would repeat the mistakes of the 2008 crisis, which is throwing money at anything just to keep right. it afloat. And that's why our plan and our Green Deal and, and our asking of member states to give us their restructuring uh, uh, recovery plans is so important that we, that we stick to the principle that the money we invest should be invested in sustainable uh, industries, and I mean sustainable in the most broadest uh, definition possible. Um, uh, and and to do that, we need to to coordinate that. We need to check that. Um, I'm a politician. I know how it works. The risks are huge. That in panic, people are starting to throw money at anything. Yeah. But we have an opportunity now, on the basis of the Green Deal, combined with the need to digitize our society and our economy, and the need to increase our resilience, which is a big ask of many people, we restructure in a way that is sustainable. That is actually the, the, the core element of our Green Deal. And what are you finding in Europe for, you know, people who, on the ground, Monsieur et Madame Tout le Monde, are they, are they saying, yeah, actually, we see the need to have this plan and stick to it? Or is that panic settling in from time to time saying, no, just throw money at it. We, we just got to do this. Well, it, of course, it depends where you are. If, if yeah, you're in, of course. In, if you're, let, let me give you a very concrete example. If you work in the steel industry or you work in the, in the car industry and you, you see these huge changes coming, and, and you're an expert at building carburetors. And the car industry is going to build electric cars with no carburetors. Where am I going to go? Uh, and, and then if, if you know, the, the one big problem we have in all Western societies since, since a decade after the previous crisis, our middle classes don't believe in progress anymore. So their attitude is any form of change is loss for me. So I resist any form of change. So we are under an obligation to demonstrate that this is a change that is inevitable, not because otherwise we'll die. That's not my point. It's inevitable because change is happening anyway, and let's try and shape it. Um, and that's why one of our flagship initiatives we're taking now is what we call the renovation wave. So we will invest massively in renovating houses and, and, and offices. Um, it immediately leads to lower emissions. It immediately leads to, to uh, economic activity, especially for small and medium-sized enterprises. And it leads to the feeling for, of citizens, hey, they're, they're doing something that works for me because my energy bill will not go up, it might go down, and my house will be, will be better, uh, more livable, and have a higher value. So these things are, you know, we, we, need to, we need to find a combination between immediate results and long-term goals. And, and that is, I think, for policymakers, the biggest challenge today. Isn't it? Isn't it? Mr. Podesta, I'd like to welcome you to uh, this panel. And uh, it's it's wonderful to have you joining us. I'm sure uh, some of what Mr. Timmermans was saying resonates with you. Oh, and totally, Megan. Yeah. yeah. Is that elephant in the room with you? I mean, <laughs> our neighbors to the south, uh, some of the incredible tensions um, that exist here between environment and economy. Uh, we're here north of the border. We're looking at what's happening in the U.S. And it's it's like practically splashed on billboards. It might actually be splashed on billboards 
school boards. What are some lessons that we can learn from your experience with, whether it's from the Center for, for American Progress or, or you as, even as a human being, you're taking action as well. What are some lessons that you think we should learn from? Well, look, uh, right now we're all focusing on politics. And uh, as my fair. friend Franz Norman said, November 3rd is going to be a uh, solve the question of what direction we're going in. And I think in the United States, more perhaps than any other country in the world, including Australia and, and, and most of Europe, the uh, contrast between the approaches of Donald Trump and Vice President Biden couldn't be more stark uh, on this question. They could not be uh, further apart. Uh, as our country is experiencing massive forest fires uh, in the western part of our country. We have a hurricane uh, that's just come ashore in the Gulf, dumping uh, a meter of water on, onto uh, uh, Biloxi and, and Mobile, Alabama. Donald Trump says it'll start getting cooler. You just wait. Reminiscent of his response uh, to COVID-19. It's going to all go away. Don't worry about it. Uh, and he, he is Follow the same formula, ignore the science, ignore the experts, discount even his own national security experts. In contrast, I think that Vice President Biden has posed uh, a formula, a solution, a way out of what are multiple crises that we're facing in the United States and that you talked about, Megan, in the introduction, the intersection of a healthcare crisis, an economic crisis, in our country, a deep racial justice crisis, and of course, the climate crisis. And to do that, he's proposed a massive investment in, uh, in clean energy uh, to build a just and equitable economy. 40% of that investment going to distressed communities and communities of color to create millions of good paying jobs, union jobs, uh, and uh, to leave the world better off for future generations. So it's exactly the vision that, that I think is embodied in the Green Deal uh, in Europe. It needs to be uh, the vision that we have for a world, uh, for our world so that we coordinate a recovery out of the uh, post-COVID-19 uh, economic crisis in a way that is going to build sustainability, but address these other issues of uh, income inequality, uh, unjust society, racial yeah. disparities. And so I, we're excited, I think, because um, it'll be up to the American people. They can, and uh, I know I saw Tim Dixon's uh, polling from earlier in the week. We've done a lot of polling here too. And I think that uh, the polling that you saw from, uh, from Tim sort of understates the way people are feeling about climate denial right now, because they're experiencing such tremendous stress, uh, not only being locked up by COVID, but what's happening in the natural world. Right. You know, it is an impressive document that or, or platform, I guess, that Biden's been able to pull together. And it, it, it looks like it is the culmination of all of this work of grassroots movements, of workers, of environmentalists, of and finding that common ground and, and relieving those tensions by figuring out what these solutions can be. It's, a, it's really impressive. Well, I think the, the Democratic Party is quite unified. Uh, this summer, the uh, there was a special committee that Speaker Pelosi set up to 
uh, chaired by Congressman Kathy Castor, that issued a report very resonant with what Biden's proposed. Uh, so, uh, and in the Senate, uh, there was just an introduction on both sides of a resolution called Thrive, uh, which uh, the, our leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, endorsed, which is the kind of second generation of the Green New Deal. Uh, so there's there's a broad, deep commitment by Democrats. Unfortunately, <laughs> our friends in the, in the Republican Party uh, have kind of lost their marbles uh, and sort of followed Trump down this tract of anti-science, sci uh, climate denial. You know, there are a few exceptions in the Northeast amongst the governors. Uh, but at, at the congressional level, they're just completely in denial about what's happening in the world. Okay, hold that thought because I want to come back to it. Um, Mayor Gergay Karachonya, I'd like to welcome you to the panel uh, coming all the way from Budapest. And you ran for, you ran on a platform for a greener and fairer Budapest. And I wonder, was that a tough sell for you in your campaign? I mean, there's a difference between the big American politics with these two big parties and then municipal campaigns where you're really on the ground. Was it a tough sell or did were, did people see that link between environment and economy? Thank you very much, first of all, for having me on the panel. It's really very honoring uh, for me to be here and to talk about these global issues which are present all around through the globe in Budapest and elsewhere. Well, uh, uh, I would like to share a few thoughts on uh, Hungarian uh, internal affairs. I uh, won elections here in Budapest in the last fall. That was the biggest political change in the last decade here in Hungary in 2010. Um, uh, the current governmental coalition uh, achieved a super majority and basically they could do whatever they wanted to. Um, they could change the constitution and they actually did many many things and as a protest vote actually uh, voters in budapest and in major cities across uh, hungary elected uh, mayors from the opposition among those candidates uh, i was honored to be included as well so basically i don't know whether it was my person or it was against the government who actually uh, people actually voted for but i'm sure that uh, 75 percent of the young people are supportive of my of my uh, policies uh, young people perfectly understand that this is not only about politics about internal affairs but it's more about their future they wanted to vote for for a more livable city for a greener city uh, we have uh, Climate for Future right here in, in uh, Hungary as well, the green uh, movements. And obviously the younger uh, voters understand perfectly what these movements are for and that Budapest needs to change. Uh, the green program, uh, besides, I think it's not only important for Budapest, it's important for Hungary. Hungary is a, a lot poorer country than your countries than the countries that you come from and it's um, half marginalized country in the European Union uh, 
So maybe in Hungary we do not have the same set of issues or same set of problems that that you know the developed Western world has. Uh, but uh, the green change in the economy for Budapest and for Hungary would definitely be an be an opportunity. It would be a huge opportunity. So we need to take advantage of this crisis because you know starting over always gives you a hope to have a better outcome right so if we use better the uh, eu project the eu funding for instance we will not only be able to restore our economy to the level where it was before but we can also shift change the mindsets of people we can have investments here where we can have not only economic recovery and economic growth but we can have also a greener economy and we could have synergy in there let me give you one very specific example here in budapest if uh, we could change or refurbish a residential homes 33 percent of them making them more energy efficient then we could create tens of thousands of jobs we could save hundreds of thousands of dollars and the middle class in hungary would be born in my belief if we could do that because we are at uh, the, on, on the margins i said uh, at the periphery of the european union in many senses of the of the word uh, we are lagging behind but if we could do that change we could have a very nice outcome also in terms of income also in terms of economic growth and we could a little bit close the gap between hungary and the more developed countries um, so i think and we need and we shouldn't be going through all the steps uh, the western countries uh, went through because we could immediately jump to more developed technologies we would not need to use obsolete technologies anymore but the big question is again whether we will be able or not to use uh, in the most appropriate way uh, the funds uh, i come from a country uh, which is on the top of the list of the olaf list and i had the chance to talk to uh, president timmermans many times on on this topic it's very important that local authorities local governments are involved in solving the crisis uh, it's very important of course there are lots of countries uh, where you have a, a very nice use of the funds and there's no corruption indeed uh, and that that would be very nice but still in those cases it would be important to involve local authorities municipalities in using the funds that would increase on the one hand transparency but on the other hand it would bring closer the decision to to the citizens to the voters and that would generate not only responses solutions uh, to all the issues but also to other issues which are very much tangled in with the with the with the global issues populism for instance we see populism in the decisions of the of the u.s president and that is very familiar to us here in hungary we see that and what's the essence of right-wing populism you give simple but 
wrong answers to complicated questions. If you want to have complicated responses, solutions, but right ones for the complicated issues, questions, then you have to go closer to people because you need to involve those people in your decision-making processes. You have to talk about your dilemmas with the people. You need to make them familiar with your with your worries, with your thoughts. Okay, so, so it's... Yeah, this is actually, thank you, because this is a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, those of us who are progressive, uh, when your win was really incredible um, to see such a successful campaign pushing back on that uh, right-wing populism, but and also uh, anti-climate rhetoric. And I wonder if you could share some of your learnings uh, from that experience of how, how to overcome that kind of anti-climate pushback and rhetoric. Uh, you did it so successfully. Well, my, my campaign was about me not being the candidate of the opposition, but the candidate of the people against the power. And we said, it's not me who is empowered. By electing me, you will empower the citizens of Budapest. You will empower the people. And... Uh, uh, my friend, the mayor of Istanbul, is a very good example. He's been a very good example. Um, you know, people in big cities face populism. Uh, before the elections, I visited him in Istanbul. And the photographer wanted to uh, take a photo with him in the chair, in the mayor general's chair. And then the mayor said, no, 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 don't do that because this is not my chair. This is the chair of 16 million Istanbul people. So this is the open government. This is uh, the, the kind of politics that is that goes really against populism, which is about real involvement and not manipulation. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, uh, Mr. Podesta, I'll come back to you on this question, but Minister McKenna, I think you might have to slip out a bit early, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead to you um, because I really want to ask you a question, well, you can probably guess, about nature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you may have heard um, Veronica Scotti from Swiss Re in her pitch before this, um, talking about the role of nature in this recovery, and uh, I'm excited that your background as Minister of Environment, now married with your new portfolio of Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, that uh, you really see this potential for green infrastructure to help us fight climate change. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking uh, when it comes to the role of nature in this kind of post-COVID economic recovery? Uh, well, thanks, Megan, and it's great to be with all the other panelists. Um, look, I, maybe I, before I go into that, I think it's it's really important what was just said, um, that we have to be with people, that people need to understand why it matters that we take action like climate change. We can't sound like environmentalists and shame people. Uh, we have to bring people together um, it's about clean air, clean water, animals, uh, biodiversity, although even that is an inaccessible word for most people. Uh, it's about saving money. Um, it's about good jobs. It's about growth. And the good news when you talk about nature, um, I think people really get it. So we are in a pandemic. And I think it's interesting. I looked at the polling that you have, although I didn't see Canada there. Um, in Canada, it's actually been pretty good on, on climate. That through the pandemic, people have said, we still care about climate action, but you gotta go where people are at. 
We're in the middle of a pandemic. I've got three kids. I'm worried about my kids. They are in school. I hope they're going to stay in school. Um, there's forest fires that are burning in the U.S. And so the air quality index uh, in B.C., uh, in Vancouver, is the worst in the whole world. Um, so if you ask people, do they care about the pandemic? Absolutely. They've got an economic and health crisis, and we need to listen to the science, and politicians need to lead. That's exactly the same thing for climate change that we will get out of the pandemic, but we're still gonna have a climate crisis. Uh, and it's an economic crisis, it's a health crisis. We need to listen to the scientists and politicians need to lead. So why, is this about, why does this matter coming to nature? Because I, I think about nature a lot now. We've changed our infrastructure programs to have a large focus on natural infrastructure um, because people have gotten out to nature. That one thing, are, are, I'm actually the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, and I don't really understand the communities piece in like a sort of deep way, um, but it's all about our local communities. And so when people get out to nature, they recognize the value of protecting it. And that's another way into climate change. And I think that's, I just think it's really important. I think that's what you're hearing from, you know, from John, from Franz, from, from Mayor Gurgley. Uh, that, that we need to be thinking about how do we talk about things that people value in a way that they understand, because there's a clear case uh, for action on climate change. So coming to nature, um, that was a huge priority uh, when I was Minister of Environment and Climate Change. And thank you, Megan. We worked very closely with WWF to do some really important things. Um, we protected a huge amount of our oceans, including over 8% with Inuit. Um, and that was actually, I think people, it just captured the imagination. Um, and I also was Minister of Parks and people recognized getting out to parks and protecting um, these spaces so that people can use them is also um, incredibly important. So I brought that to my portfolio to say that like, we've thought so traditionally about infrastructure being roads and bridges. It is so much more than that. I mean, it's broadband in the digital economy. We're not talking about that, but of course in COVID, everyone's worried about being connected. Um, and it's actually an equity issue. But so many of these things are, are not just about hard, like they're not the hard infrastructure, um, they're the softer pieces, or I don't know how you describe it, but, but natural infrastructure is both good for adaptation um, and mitigation. Mm -hmm. and, and it also captures the imagination. It's interesting when you look at polling and one shouldn't just look at polling at all, but it's good, to, it's a snapshot of where people are at. One of the things that people liked the most um, in terms of things that we we announced was planting 2 billion trees because it was tangible. People are like, yes, we like trees. And it also, you know, depending where you plant them. So I'm actually someone who really believes um, we have to be, uh, you know, we have to actually get outcomes. I mean, it depends where you plant them, but I think you also have to bring people along. And so I think that that is the most important thing on climate. And uh, I now we're in this situation where we're talking about recovery how do we invest money? Um, it's not about throwing dollars away. It's about making smart choices, but you can get triple outcomes. So when you look at how you make investments, you make investments for growth. Where is the growth? The growth is the clean economy. It is quite clear. Everyone knows that. We uh, have a Canada infrastructure bank, so stay tuned. That's going to be making some major announcements, but it's going to be very related to where are the opportunities for growth? And also, where can you crowd in the private sector? Because the private sector knows this. If you're rational, you know where the growth opportunities are, and you also know the risks of not going for those opportunities. But beyond that, you can do, you can reduce GHGs. 
um, at the same time. So when you look at, and you look at where the jobs are, and I care greatly, I talk a lot to young people, they want jobs that are green, um, they want to be contributing. But if you look at a million dollars spent in traditional infrastructure, you get around seven jobs. You do it in green infrastructure, which can be natural infrastructure, it can be a whole other range of areas, um, renewables, it can be public transportation, you're going to get nine to 13 jobs. So there's a clear GHG piece, a jobs piece, and then there's the equity piece. And I think this is so incredible because John talked about this. It's not just in the U.S. where people are really worried uh, about racism, racial injustice. And we see that with not only our racialized communities, but of course with our Indigenous peoples here in Canada. And you can also, when you're triple benefit, you can look at inclusivity. So we look at public transit. That's about people getting around, yes, cleaner, yes, faster. But that's the only way some people can afford to get around. You look at um, energy efficiency. People should save money. Um, and that's an opportunity to make sure they do that. And air price on pollution, and I know I've done a round circle around nature, but I think that there's a broader piece that is really important. If you look at, we put a price on pollution. Let me tell you, that's not easy. And I bear the scars uh, from that. Um, you know, it's you, you really have to be tough. Um, and I've realized in this role, you do have to be tough. Um, but we gave more money back. We did it in the most small C conservative way. Put a price on what you don't want and give money to people so they can make their own decisions and they can be part of this. And I think that's so incredibly important that we always remain focused on people and then we can do this. And I, I think in Canada, people get it. They know we need to get out of the pandemic. Absolutely. That is the day to day. They're worried about their kids. They're worried about their jobs. They're worried about their health. Um, but they also get that we have a bigger crisis that we still have to focus on. But it's up to politicians to help them along and talk about the case and talk about the facts and talk about the science and talk about clean air, clean water, uh, animals and nature. Thanks. I, hey, I don't mind the roundabout circle at all because it shows how we're, how connected this is. Uh, Mr. Timmermans, this is a little bit about how, like what you said at the very beginning about how these issues are so interconnected. And the minister talks about the potential for jobs, the potential for climate change, the potential for equity. And I know that you are also responsible for developing the biodiversity strategy for 2030. Uh, and I wonder if you have any learnings to share with us about, um, you know, we're talking about the role of nature, this is also a habitat. This has also has the potential to increase the diversity of life on our planet. Well, well, first of all, when we, when we um, did our impact assessment on um, increasing our reduction target for 2030, we used uh, the last data we got from UNFCCC and, and it showed that, that there's a huge potential for carbon sink. Uh, so, so nature can be actually a really good engine to create more carbon sink, and that that's why you know the minister was referring to a popular program in Canada. The announcement we made that we want to uh, plant three billion trees in the next ten years is one of the most popular things we've announced because people really understand what we're saying, and we can really translate that also in what it does in terms of carbon sink, improving um, uh, our uh, biodiversity. Um, because man, that's not going well, uh, and that's that's the understatement of the of the year. Um, uh, you know, we, we're really, really at serious risk of losing one million species, and and we're we're almost reaching tipping points in terms of pollinators, etc., that will kill our agriculture. If, you know, uh, so this is really, really serious. But we can do something about this, and 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 the the the, the point is that you need to give people sort of 
um, uh, places where they can engage themselves because I, I don't I don't worry a lot of more anymore about climate deniers even if there's one sitting in the in the White House uh, I worry more about climate desperation people saying well it's all lost and I can't do anything about it so let's live it out or let's try and save ourselves um, and if you can give people some some issues they can really act themselves and show hey this has an effect you know one of the most popular uh, pieces of legislation we we offered I, I prepared in the last five years was the single-use plastics legislation uh, and it had an immediate effect on on plastics going into the oceans etc and people say hey that's what i'm doing i'm doing this myself so this is something uh, we need to do but listening to the debate is one one issue i, I want to raise because yeah. it, it's one of the most difficult issues one of the most difficult hardest nuts to crack you know our cities and our rural areas are getting more and more apart um socially politically economically and uh, you know together with mike bloomberg i i chair this organization called the global covenant of mayors where you get ten thousand cities from all over the world together with great ideas that we learn from each other etc but increasingly i come to the conclusion that cities should feel extremely responsible for rural areas uh, uh, because if if we don't share that responsibility you know it's it's it, the political divide you see in the us and in europe very often goes along those lines of rural versus cities and if if we if we cannot if we cannot um build bridges between the two it's the populace that will win everywhere we cannot win this fight if we're not able to build bridges and and and, and this is an issue i wanted to raise here because i believe we need to find ways mm -hmm. of, of of giving hope and perspective to because they're losing their best and brightest people all leaving to the cities uh the the agricultural policy is 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 leading to decline in terms of economic revenue uh biodiversity laws etc we need to give them a perspective and i think Changing our agricultural policies is one element. Uh, bringing broadband everywhere in rural areas is one element. Distance working is going to be one element. I see it in my, my own country, young families saying, oh, these big cities, housing is very expensive. Hey, I found ways of working a bit more distance. Why don't I buy a house in rural areas? I mean, these are also things we need to stimulate if we want everybody to, to, to buy into this idea that we can have a sustainable society. Yeah. Um... I'm processing a lot of what you said. You're, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about that divide. Um, Mr. Podesta, I'm sure it, it rang true for you as well, and you're seeing it play out. I wonder if you, you know, here in Canada, we are very aware of what's happening in the U.S. Um, as, our, as our closest neighbor. What, what can we learn? What can Canada learn from what's happening in the U.S. right now, uh, when it, especially around anti-climate populism and and this divide, this rural-urban divide that uh, that Mr. Timmermans is talking about? Well, just to add to the complication, yeah, I, I very much resonated to what he said. Uh, our constitution is structured in a way because of the uh, the you know two. Uh, the our, the our Senate is structured with uh, two members for each state. Uh, so uh, California has the same representation as Wyoming. Uh, and the Electoral College uh, gives a premium, I think, to uh, rural communities. But fundamentally, this is a question of, uh, of having a set of ideas that will provide people opportunity to live decent lives in those places. I think they have felt 
uh, in essence, left out, left behind, sort of looked down upon. That's been exploited. That was really the secret to, I think, Trump's uh, victory in those uh, upper mid Midwest states to suggest that the Democratic Party had abandoned you. You, we, They don't care about you. That's what he's still, in essence, running on uh, in 2020. And we need a response to that by saying that there are uh, opportunities to uh, lead uh, 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 good lives by having those kind of job opportunities that that uh, uh, have been alluded to by both uh, the minister and uh, and the president. So uh, I I think that what we're trying to do politically is kind of reach out to those communities. Right now, though, the politics, if you kind of look at where things stand, uh, it's still challenging. I, mean, I think that there's a tremendous divide in this country. I think uh, President Timmerman's idea of linking cities to, to rural communities is a kind of interesting one. Uh, but I think mostly it's about making those social connections and creating the infrastructure that gives people the opportunity uh, to participate in, a, in the modern economy that that is one part broadband, another part uh, trying to ensure that educational opportunities are are there. Um, but it's a you know it's a challenging part of our politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's challenging here too uh, in Canada, not to the degree, but we certainly see it. Uh, Minister McKenna, now that it's been one year since the federal election and, you know, in the during the election, we had uh, breathtakingly large, excitingly large climate demonstrations in different cities across Canada. And I think my impression was that voters did send a message that they were tired of inaction on climate change and tired of the rhetoric, the anti-climate rhetoric, you know, uh, and saying enough is enough. So, but I wonder a year later, what are some takeaways from you when you think back about that election and and the, and where Canadians were at on this? Well, I mean, like there's a lot to say about that election. Yeah. It was a really tough election. It wasn't 2015. Um, and I mean, look, personally, I think I spent so much time thinking about this because I really lived this whole divide. Um, probably have the moniker, you know, Climate Barbie for the rest of my life. Uh, and I didn't like it. Uh, you know, I, I'm from Hamilton. I'm a competitive swimmer. You know, I'm Irish extraction. I'm tough. But I don't think it's it's good for anyone to have these fights. But, you know, the reality is there's going to be some tension. And the young people are demanding change. And they've been so inspiring to me because, like, you know, they just are able to see clearly. Like, we're talking about in 2030, 2050. That is not very long. And, and I think it's a reality check. At the same time, maybe because I'm from Hamilton, and Hamilton is a steel town, and it's been really tough in Hamilton, that you also have to recognize that people deserve jobs, and they deserve economic opportunity, and, you know, they have to figure out how to pay their bills. And uh, so I think this is a really, um, I think it's really important that we not get disconnected from people. And by that, I mean everyone. And it doesn't matter whether they just vote for you because life isn't just about winning elections. Life is actually about doing things. And you have to be worried about regional tensions. Um, I kind of feel like I could have a beer with anyone, but there were certainly people who were like, gosh, you just want to take my job and destroy my community. Um, but, but it's, you know, so I think you really have to be thoughtful about policies. Um, we did, we, we decided to phase out coal. 
obviously extremely important uh, given how polluting coal is. And we have a huge opportunity in Canada. We're already 80% clean power. Um, but we created the first Just Transition Task Force, maybe in the world, I don't know. But we actually went to communities where we were saying, like, we're phasing out your job because that's what it is. And we can't, you can't just be abstract about it and sit in downtown Toronto or Montreal or Ottawa and not think about the impacts of the decisions you make. And, and you know, it was amazing because we had labor leaders there. Uh, we had members of the community and like 600 people would show up in these little, in, in these town halls. And yeah, some of them were really mad and some of them were really upset and some of them were really worried. Um, and that is totally normal. But I think they did appreciate at the end, we were actually listening to their concerns. And um, I talked to one of the labor leaders and he said it, it actually kind of changed, changed him because he, he realized that, you know, people deserve opportunities and there's ways you can do it. So they do want investments in infrastructure. That's totally mm-hmm. reasonable. As we develop policies, we need to think about what are the opportunities for farmers and what are the impacts that you might be unintended consequences. And I think there's huge opportunities. I mean, when you look at biofuels, uh, you look at carbon sinks, um, you know, there's some some real opportunities. Uh, but I think we always have to be vigilant. Um, it's, it's a very different climate. I could have a whole discussion about um, what's happening online and the impact that has to discourse. Um, that I think that is extremely worrying. I mean, that is not unrelated to being able to get serious climate action or to the health yeah. of our democracies. But I, I think like just going forward, you need to be very mindful. You need to be mindful of the generational divide. You need to be mindful of regional divides. You need to be mindful of urban versus cities. You're not going to solve all those things, um, but you have to think really hard about them. And I come back to what I said before. Like, people are reasonable. It was Jean Chrétien, um, uh, former prime minister, said to me, he said in French, les Canadiens sont raisonnables, soyez raisonnables. I don't know that he was thinking we're so reasonable at the time, but he said, like, be reasonable. And so I think when you talk about things that matter, you talk about where the jobs are going to be. You talk about, you know, animals. You talk about protecting land and water. You talk about, you know, providing opportunities. You talk about saving money. Those are real things. But it's very hard. And, you know, the context south of the border can be extremely challenging here. And I think we need to be mindful of that. And and you just work with who your partners are. And friends, you know, we created the Ministerial on Climate Action um, after, you know, there was a change in direction in the United States. And we said, like, we're just going to move forward. And you do have to find your allies in life. And so getting back mm-hmm. to one, uh, you know, you have to be making sure you're bringing everyone together uh, as much as you can. But also you need to go with people who believe in this. And the good news now is I've seen it in the U.S. that businesses on board. I've seen cities are on board, um, and and I think people are starting to get it. And and once again, I think COVID is actually not a bad way to kind of talk about climate because it's an economic, it's a health crisis first and foremost. It's an economic crisis. We got to listen to the science, and we have to provide leadership. And and I think that that's a way to talk. Certainly, a way I believe we can talk to Canadians. And you know what? We just have to keep on keeping on. I have three kids, yeah. and that is the thing. Every day, you know, even when it's hard, um, and I know that's true for everyone else on this panel, we owe it to everyone to just do everything we can, use every tool in our toolbox to try to bring people together and just damn well move forward. You know, I so as someone who cares deeply about the environment, I found the last election, you know, electoral outcomes aside, the, the discussion around the election was really inspiring for me. I felt like there was this, whoa. I don't know if everybody else can. 
I feel like I need to be more inspirational. Was that my cue to be more inspirational? <laughs> oh, that was really awesome. That was your lead in. <laughs> you maybe had a different experience in the election. I was just like, how to get this right. But uh, it's good. You were totally inspired. <laughs> um, I was pretty inspired by the conversations around the election. I really think it was a bit of a watershed for us as Canadians to say, hey, climate really matters. And maybe we don't know what that means. Maybe we don't know what it is that we want politicians to do, but, um, but we want you to know that it matters. No, and actually, you know what? Okay, so maybe, you know, I have slight PTSD, uh, being in politics, you get that. No, look, in the end, like we, we bought in a price on pollution. And, you know, the election was, I don't know if it's totally a referendum on that, but, you know, look at where people ended up. Yeah. They supported parties that overwhelmingly that supported putting a price on pollution, which is really hard. And there was a recognition that we need to take action on climate change. And I kind of like it because it wasn't just, you know, young people, it was their parents. And often it was their grandparents who said, like, I didn't really understand this issue until I saw my granddaughter, grandson marching in the streets. And I recognize, wait a minute, it's not just about the here and now, it's about their future. And I love them. And I want to make sure that they have, you know, the opportunity for, you know, a healthy planet. And so in that sense, it was, it was inspirational. I mean, it was a bit tough. I think at points, um, you know, some of the, the rhetoric was, was, you know, over the top. But you're right. We got a good outcome. And uh, and I think, look, I actually am heartened by where Canadians are at. I saw the polling. I actually don't buy that Canadians, you know, are less inclined to action on climate change. They are just, of course, focused mm -hmm. on the pandemic and they have. To be. Yeah. Um, you brought up several times the, the role of young people and uh, uh, Mayor Katachanya. I know that um, young people came out and supported you and really heard your message. And that's a that's the golden nut that so many elected officials are trying to crack. Uh, how do we mobilize young people and get them to pay attention to this? Not pay attention to environment because they're paying they're paying attention to environment. Um, I don't know if you saw the the video of uh, Martin Moore. Uh, ahead of time and he he was talking about uh potentially offering a program kind of like a a peace corps program where there's uh one year environmental service i don't know if that re resonates for you or if there were other things that you found work uh, worked but how did you manage to get so much support from youth yes i did i I did see the uh, the video, and I, I very much liked the initiative. Uh, uh, there is a lot of frustration in the young people. They are climate anxious, and we need to turn that around into some action and to channel that for the benefit uh, of of uh, of people. I have um, two children. 20-year-old and a 20 and a 10-year-old, 20 and 10-year-old. And I talk to them a lot about climate change, uh, about insecurities in the world around them. COVID-19, that brings about a lot of uncertainties. We do not know how deep the crises will be, but we see the health effects. Uh, you see a generation, they go to school, next day they don't go. So they are going to be definitely different adults than we are. They will have a lot more uncertainties. They will be a lot more uneasy about the future. So it's very important that we involve them in, in the dialogue. Uh, maybe we could lower 
the age, you know, where they are allowed to vote. That would be one means of involving young people. Uh, or we can have, I don't know, uh, exchange, student exchange programs so that we send out children to different countries so they see how democracy works there. So there's lots of things we can do, but it's the reason you mentioned here that we need reasonable solutions. So we need these people to understand what reason is and what reasonable solutions could be. And uh, let me bring to this discussion another topic. It's important that we make young people understand these uh, challenges. But as Madam Minister said, there are lots of divides, genera political, generational. And what we see is that uh, we have a divide between uh, populism and progression, but there are overlaps at the same time. Elderly people understand better and President Timmermans uh, talked about the divide between uh, big cities and the rural areas. And we see that in Hungary as well. And we, if we look at the election map in Europe, and we look, take a look at uh, Poland, I closely watched that because uh, my friend was uh, the candidate for, for uh, Warsaw uh, mayorship. And young people, uh, uh, more educated, Young people living in big cities voted for progression, for progress. And the elderly people, the, let's say the more senior citizens living in the rural areas, voted for populism. And the biggest challenge for me as a mayor is to promote a policy that is about equality, equity, and closing the gap between, you know, uh, gen young generations, old generations, rural and big cities. That's the biggest challenge to me. How can we change that? How can we get some uh, healthy overlap? Mm -hmm. You know, how we can have generations brought closer together? How can we tell people that, okay, you need to be on your parents' side, your grandparents' side, and you parents and grandparents, you need to be on your children's side and we need to close the, the gap. And maybe green policy can help here as well, because uh, cities and the surrounding small rural areas can be managed as one single unit, one single administrative unit, so that we can empower local economy, we can strengthen local economy and get a better partnership between the big cities and the surrounding smaller rural areas. For instance, if we are looking for um, suppliers, agricultural suppliers, and we say, okay, basic foods need to be brought in within a 15 kilometer area, then that is going to be a close partnership between the big city and the surrounding smaller rural areas and villages. But we need to think very clearly about the policies because there are lots of communities um, who are you know at the periphery and if they turn against us because of this policy then we are going to lose them and we are not going to be successful thanks so much for that whether it's urban or rural uh youth or older uh minister mccann quickly before you go they're all going to need jobs 
Yeah, I mean, look, we have a, a green jobs program. It's great. I actually was just with some students uh, last week. They were testing, uh, they were fishing, sort of catching fish and testing the fish to see the quality of the water. And they're from all across Canada coming together. So the good news is you can um, you can actually create good jobs. Uh, you can give kids experience. Gosh, like kids need jobs now. Young people need jobs. They have a jobs crisis for young people. Um, and uh you can give them, you know, also exchanges of ideas and it can be from rural areas and from cities. So I think there's a great opportunity. I do have to go. I'll say to the mayor, if you want to do an exchange, I will, once we're out of the pandemic, I promise when people can travel, we can do an exchange young people from either the city of Ottawa or from Canada coming to uh, come visit you guys and, and you can send some over because we also need to get out more. I say that to all Canadians. The world is a lot bigger than Canada. And that's a good thing because there's a lot of people who are working on climate solutions um, and we need to be working together. But anyway, great discussion. I need to go back to a cabinet meeting because I have to stay in cabinet so I can keep on advocating uh, for uh, the environment and the economy. They go hand in hand. Um, but anyway, wonderful discussion. Thanks, everyone. Um, hopefully someday we can all share a beer together. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, Mr. Timmermans, before I hand over to you to close, uh, Mr. Podesta, I just wanted to throw back to you because um, I find the work that you're you're doing with the Center for American Progress, um, man, it's really capturing the ideas of young Americans and uh, really just it's such a youth-inspired movement, and I wonder um, what we can learn from how you've been able to harness that energy. Well, the smartest thing we've done from the beginning when I started in 2003 was we hire a lot of young people. Yeah. <laughs> and we give them a lot of responsibility and power, and we listen to what their ideas are. And that, help, that helps really, I think, shape our program uh, and respond to the things they're feeling. And uh, just before uh, I uh, turn things back, I, I, as I'm listening to the conversation about populism mm. and as a segue to the next session, uh, one of the things that's feeding that populism is the division that's being sown in social media, particularly as a result of disinformation. And that is a particular concern, I think, of ours at, at uh, the Center for American Progress. We've been trying to fight against that. Uh, I started a, a essentially a political organization called Climate Power 2020, which elevated that. But in this climate space, the, the division being sown between people who want solutions, people who want to embrace the future, people who see the potential for innovation versus the disinformation that's coming from the other side, that's denying reality, that's blaming it on uh, you know, all kinds of outside sources and, and, and uh, uh, you know, foreign sources is really uh, a huge problem. And I think in addition to solving these issues on, in terms of job creation, et cetera, we have to solve this fundamental democratic problem of getting back uh, a public space where we can have serious dialogue based uh, on facts and then you know, different ideas about how to solve the challenges going forward. But thank you, Megan, for a, a, a great conversation. I, my pleasure. And I agree. Quelle belle conversation. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, everyone. This was uh, fantastic. I learned a lot and I'm pretty sure that everybody tuning in did as well. Uh, Mr. Timmermans, it's over to you to, to wrap. 
Wow, how do I wrap this up? But first, let me let me refer to something that Anne Applebaum said uh, to me last year. She said, you know, the invention of the printing press led to huge democratization of information and to 100 years of religious wars. Um, and I think, I think you know, um, uh, if you look at what our information society is doing, it, it, it's leading to uh, a democratic wave. And at the same time, it's causing huge disruption in relationships, in behavioral uh, patterns, etc. And And uh, I think uh, one of our main tasks is to make sure that this does not lead to another 100 years of religious wars and that we channel this into the right direction. And education and engaging with young people is going to be essential in all, in all of this. Um, you know, uh, second comment, the pandemic, the industrial revolution, we're, we're in uh, the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, they're all rolled into one. They all lead to a huge need for redistribution. Um, um, between social classes, between generations, uh, between nations, within nations. Um, and the only way we can get uh, the politics right of the transition we need to go through is if we have a credible plan for redistribution that leaves no one behind. And this means that you cannot dissociate climate policy from taxation policies. You cannot dissociate uh, uh, tackling COVID from trade policy. So, so the the interesting thing is and the complicated thing is all these things are linked and this is something i really retained also from our conversation and so we will need to have truly a transformational approach to this uh, and a progressive transformational approach to this. we know exactly what the populist answer to all of this is um we need to have an answer that is credible that people can understand people can relate to people feel part of and it's going to be complicated um that's the problem of, of our politics. It's never simple. Um, and uh, we are in a post-paternalistic society also because of this information uh, uh, um, revolution. People will believe anything because they don't believe in anything anymore. Um, and, and so we need to reshape that. And I, I work with young people. Well, I'm, I've got four kids and I've recently be, even become a grandfather. So I, I, I live with them, but I also work with them a lot. Their idealism is a source of huge inspiration, but we need to give them a place where this idealism can be made concrete. And I believe ideas such as social service, such as, um, uh, you know, we, we have we have a, a group of volunteers in the European Union, that, uh, a group that we created in the migration crisis. We could just reshape that into volunteers that act in the in other crises, whether it's the pandemic or the climate crisis. So let's let's embolden and uh, weaponize, in fact, our youngest generation to do this. It will certainly inspire the older generations, because let me end on something Willy Brandt said many years ago, positive societal change is always a result of an alliance between grandchildren and their grandparents. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. So everyone, that was a fantastic panel on sustainability in uh, a post-COVID recovery and an economic recovery. And uh, I tweeted out what the conversation was going to be. Is it possible to have a just and green recovery? And my, I already, I spoiled it. I said, 
yes. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my big questions to you were about how and uh, examples that we can learn from here in Canada uh, from your experiences. And thank you so much for delivering that. Um, please th help me thank Franz Timmermans, the first vice president of the European Commission, the Honourable Catherine McKenna, Canadian Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, uh, Gerge Karaskonya, Mayor of Budapest, and John Podesta, Founder and uh, Director of the Centre for American Progress. And uh, in sign language, uh, applause is this. So let me give you a round of applause. Thank you. Merci beaucoup.